Minus 60 seconds. Best recorders, high speed. Five. Open so if you'll Open. Three. Two. One. Zero. The podcast Naros Cesti or Crossroad invites Oksana Duchak, who is the deputy director of the Center for Social and Labor Research in Kiev and the co-editor of Commons, Journal of Social Criticism. He's an activist of Essential Autonomous Struggles Transnational or East and one of the initiators of the manifesto, the Right to Resist, a feminist manifesto. She holds a PhD in sociology from the Department of Sociology in Ihor Sikorsky Kiev Polytechnic Institute and an MA in sociology and social anthropology from the Central European University. She is now a fellow at the Berlin Institute for Empirical Integration and Migration Research, and she has published extensively on labor issues, labor protests, gender inequality, or socioeconomic inequality. The podcast Narosisti, or Crossroads, is created in collaboration with Alarm and the research program Global Conflicts and Local Interactions, which is funded by the AV21 strategy of the Czech Academy of Sciences. The series invites social science scientists whose research addresses important topics and issues of our globalizing world. Today's podcast is moderated by me, uh, Olga Georgiev. Oksana, hello, welcome, and thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Yes, thank you for the invitation. You know, I was reading uh, in preparation for this podcast, I was reading an interview that you gave for the Left East uh, Review really probably a couple of uh, of days after the invasion started so it was e- either fe- late february or very very um early uh, march um it was so it was like more than half half a year ago and it was really striking to read it now six months later following the latest news of uh, the ukrainian counter of on offense and advances Um, it seems to me that many things that were very clear to you then became clear to many others only after Ukraine had managed to prove its capacity to resist and, and push back. And uh, in particular, it was interesting to read that this quote from you, and I quote you here, some leftist people are saying that the way out is to negotiate and agree on the neutrality of Ukraine. It is hard for me to support this point at the moment. This position is a little bit colonial, denying also the sovereignty of a country. It is up to the people in the country to decide what they want to do." End quote here. And then two months ago, you have also initiated and co-signed a manifesto, a feminist manifesto, the right to resist, which was actually a critical reaction to the so-called feminist resistance against war manifesto, which came up in March 2022, which was calling um, against, and I quote here again, adding any more weapons to the conflict or increasing uh, war budgets. Uh, the manifesto that you co-signed pointed out that uh, the authors of this first manifesto deny Ukrainian women the right to resistance, which constitutes a basic act of self-defense of the oppressed. In contrast, uh, we view feminist solidarity as a political practice which must listen to the voices of those directly affected by imperialist aggression. I end quote here. Can you tell us a little bit how the debate continued after the the publishing of the manifesto in July 
did it? Were there any developments in any way? Well, first of all, the text was signed by more than 800 individuals, like activists, academics, and people of various backgrounds from all over the world, like including from the region, from Western countries, from countries of the global south, and so on. And it was also signed by more than 7,000 organizations, also from different countries. Uh, I'm not sure whether it convinced somebody, I hope it did, uh, but I think our main intention was to make the voice of Ukrainian feminists uh, visible in the public space and to show that it is not okay to, to make some uh, final statement on the situation without including these voices, which can be very different from what we hear from most of the Western uh, feminist scene. Um, so that was our crucial intention, and we got a lot of positive feedback and political solidarity and support from different individuals and groups uh, all over the world. Um, I also um, must say that I, like in relation to the first interview you quoted, um, I must clarify that uh, it should be understand that I'm deeply uh, against, like I'm also for peace. I'm a, I was considering myself a pacifist before, but now I also understand that pacifism is not something in the vacuum. And I'm generally against like absolute pacifism, the denying that any uh, violence, even if it's, uh, as we put it in the manifesto, even if it's a violence, in response to attack and the, when it's violence, which is a self-defense violence. Um, because like for me, and uh, also what is important piece is um, about minimizing the threat and doing it in a long uh, range and doing it um, to have um, a sustainable peace. So like that people uh, can live in the country and build their lives uh, without being under the constant threat of uh, another war and another escalation. And it, it's, uh, this piece is also, and here I support the, um, quite a big discussion and um, discourse in feminist debates about the peace in general and security so peace is also about the economic and social rights of uh, especially of underprivileged groups uh, which we find in this society including women lgbt groups uh, minor ethnic minorities and so on and so forth uh, to do that, of course, to guarantee this peace, um, political struggle is needed, and we are not naive to not, we understand the intentions of our elites and also Western elites like that. Uh, for them, it's uh, more or less about like free market reforms, neoliberalism, and so on and so forth. Uh, so here, of course, a political struggle is needed, and we clearly understand that it will be a hard political struggle in the current situations, um, in the current situation in Ukraine. Uh, but also, what is needed and what is um, desperately missing from this debates about peace, security, escalation, demilitarization, militarization, and so forth. Uh, it's about uh, what is needed as an alternative system of security, because uh, we need to um, construct a system like which precludes further escalations and which makes it basically um, like very unlikely or impossible. 
because otherwise you will end up in a trap of endless expectations like that this peace will be broken and uh, here i think that what is very important like in this debates about nato ukraine in nato ukrainian neutrality uh, and so on it's like that um, i think left is put too much and like some left is put too much emphasis uh, on uh, like their opposition to nato and they don't think about that uh, it's not about whether it's nato or i don't know china or whoever it's about how to preclude this escalation and if we can like the, we are finding ourselves in a trap where we cannot provide an alternative system of security and we are not even discussing it so you cannot say like that for example poland should quit nato or something without providing people with some reliable system uh, of security that they won't expect that one day they will uh, find themselves in the place of ukrainian society and i think that is the most important now so that is probably one thing which i uh, which changed um, in which in relation to which i changed my mind a bit from during this several months mm -hmm. so i think it's not even that much about the question of neutrality or not like we can speak about neutrality but we should also understand that we can provide this neutrality only in terms of uh, having a reliable system of security which will guarantee to a neutral for a neutral country or society to uh, that it won't be attacked one day by uh, some neighbor country or not neighboring country which finds um, some reasons to do that I think that is the most important uh, and uh, I think that is where the emphasis in this debate should be made and not on the geopolitical struggle between different militaristic blocs mm -hmm. yeah you, you also meant yeah as you mentioned in the beginning there were um... Uh, more than uh, yeah, 800 people that have signed, numerous organizations that have consigned the, the the critical manifesto, manifesto that came in in reaction to the to the first manifesto. And I want to ask you in this context about what is the role in your opinion that um, academia plays? And here also, as you mentioned, this need to um, sort of imagine uh, an alternative system of security if you see the role uh, what is the role of academia that you see in the, in this sense uh, yeah in imagining this new system also pushing for a conversation about the right to resist in particular when it comes to when it comes in reaction to calls for peace or disarmament that often also originates in academic circles um, I think there are several aspects. First of all, I'm not participating in these debates on the level of academia, I must, I must say, because my academic interests are somehow, they are kind of connected because almost everything is connected in this world, but they are uh, definitely different. Um, but I must say that I'm deeply disappointed with some aspects of um, uh, academia and its hierarchies, especially when it comes uh, from people who kind of are in theories which should... Um, push them to reflect this privileges and hierarchies and for example west centric uh, perspective and for example lack of attention to local context local voice one uh, so i must say that probably the biggest disappointment for me the disappointment for me was some aspects of um, a reaction of um, feminists from uh, mostly western academia but of course i must emphasize not i'm not um, referring to all of them because there were a lot of also people with who were trying to make quite deep reflections about the situation who are first of all who were listening to to ukrainian feminists for example and feminists from the region. 
but in general like this lack of um, a reflection about um, academia hierarchies and global economic hierarchies and their place in those hierarchies and place of ukraine and ukrainian activists and ukrainian um, academic people like female for example feminists in this hierarchies it's astonishing and also like when you are in academia you kind of uh, understand how important the knowledge about the local situation about your field and if you are trying to make political statement about a particular country a particular society like well the, the basic step you should do is to do a research and to understand what is happening and yeah and not um uh, try to to fit the reality into your political uh, beliefs, which uh, sometimes can not fit into this very different context. That's I must say is uh, was very disappointing for me. But of course, again, I'm not participating here in like uh, on the side of academia, but also what uh, probably is what I can. Um, name as the bad side of this academia knowledge production and titles production that unfortunately very often um, we listen to people who are kind of uh, academia superstars who have like a lot of uh, titles and uh, teach in a very famous um, universities and so on and we listen to them only because of their status and not because they are specialists for example in the local context or because they at least tried to to talk with people and to understand what is happening in the ground and that's of course a very big problem and i understand that probably like some time ago like we in ukraine me and uh, like other people like feminist activists we are also we were also doing the same mistake that we were uh, like we are trying to reflect or to make some statement or opinion about some dis a situation which is in a very distant country or very different context we of course are limited in our resources so this is also a structural trap we are limited in our resources we are reproducing opinions and positions which we hear from people whom we consider to be like um, of high status of high knowledge of like high professional standards and so on unfortunately very often this uh, like status and academia and um, the coherence of political statements they do not match but yeah it's also a structural problem because we cannot know about everything but probably in this situation it would be better to if you don't know about something and you want to make your opinion about that the best uh, option would to at least to ask if not local people local activists to ask people at least who are doing research about this particular region and have some knowledge about it and not reproducing like some opinion which you heard and uh, from some authority which has a status in academia that's very of course um, yeah that's a very big mistake and very often made also by us of course yeah um now that you were saying that i was re i was remembering seeing um opinions that i uh, from people that i academics that i was following that i know specialize in um asylum seeking procedures in canada or, or something like that who as i was suspecting wasn't sure they could you know name five cities in in ukraine um but um I don't know if you asked yourself this question, but I, I still struggling a little bit to understand the reason behind that. Although I I can intuitively name a few, but I was struggling to understand whether this is an inherent problem of academia that kind of lives in a bubble and has a really 
it has a problem when it comes to social like upwards mobility and sort of uh, um, encouraging fresh uh, voices, um, especially from less privileged ba- backgrounds. It can can it also be um, a problem which might also be related to an inherent problem of academia, but an insufficient transnational cooperation, yeah, or exchange of opinions, or also me, you know, also coming from a similar more or less background as you, is it also, you know, a fact that there is a vacuum, yeah, that countries like Ukraine or Moldova that is kind of, you know, maybe taken over by voices that are less, happen to be louder. And yeah, so I don't know if you wondered, you asked yourself these questions and then how can we overcome this, overcome, overcome this, especially in the context where we need to, as you said, imagine, you know, an alternative system of security, all of these needs that are quite specific for this region. How can we amplify this voice and make them sort of deciding in this kind of imbalance of voices? Well, I think, uh, yeah, you are to- I totally agree with that, that like this kind of region, like Central East European countries, post-Soviet countries, uh, some some of them, um, they're kind of a blind spot for many people in academia, of course, not for all of them. There are brilliant works on, like, for example, in my field, like on labor research in the post-Soviet space and so on. But in general, like these countries are not exotic enough for uh, like um, people, for example, in anthropology apology to be interested in them like to say you yeah, i'm going to field work in uh, some i don't know like georgia or somewhere like i don't know kazakhstan it's like it doesn't sound that fancy as to say i'm going to i don't know burkina faso or some other country so there is also reproduction of this uh, classical anthropological approach like but also do we that... want someone from western europe to come and do like anthropological research in ukraine uh, that's a that's an interesting question but there is i i, I mean i truly believe that with a good preparation and good intention people from any country can come to any country and to understand what is happening on the ground because also in anthropology there is this um, a little bit stereotypical perception that a person from inside society cannot research it because she or he is kind of binded to that society in a way and don't see some processes which the outsider would see which I think it's like this too Uh, polar positions uh, like the truth is somewhere in the middle like I know like people who are doing research in their own society and doing it very well like if they are well well prepared and they have this optic of uh, being inside and at the same time having the potential to reflect about what is happening uh, with some kind of on some different levels in everyday perception so it's uh, probably not about that much um, about like where a person is from but about these patterns which emerge in academia like when still like this region is not considered interested enough and what is probably sadly ironic that uh, now ukraine for example will be interesting for many people and uh, unle- um, uh, and that moment when uh, the country would be considered secure enough for uh, people to come and do the field research here i think there will be a lot of people 
that would be my prediction because now for example uh, a lot of western universities they just uh, directly forbid the uh, scholars to go to ukraine because it's dangerous and i know for example um, people from uh, ukrainian background like ukrainian um, scholars who were affiliated to western universities and they were basically ordered to uh, leave the country because uh, like the university cannot uh, pay them scholarship if they are staying in ukraine like because i mean it's too dangerous and so on and so forth of course the intention behind this is kind of good but that's also the question of yeah what is perceived as to be dangerous and uh, yeah manageable and so on and so forth but of course now um, i think the region will probably uh, get more t- attention in this kind of very sad circumstances of course but in general yes like anthropology for example didn't pay enough attention to the region uh, and um, which also reproduces this kind i'm far from like all these talks about um centrism on or too much centrism on russia and russian culture and post-soviet studies but to an extent it reflects uh, the reality in that way that uh, a lot of scholars even if they were interested in a post-soviet context uh, explicitly and wanted to do research about this post-soviet context they were going mostly to russia which kind of there is reasons behind i think they may be in funding and some other reasons it's some context which is more known and so on but there is also this like kind of uh yeah like imperial background involved in behind like that uh, um, russia is the center of empire it's kind of everything happens there so we should probably go there if you want to understand the post-soviet context although like um, comparative research of the post-soviet context like there were very good works done by about like Russia, Ukraine and um, Belarusian uh, economic, socioeconomic and labor processes after the Soviet Union collapsed. Like this comparative research, they show that there were um, very significant difference between the processes which have been happening in different countries. Of course, I mean, there must be because they are different countries with different uh, ruling elite, with different civil society and so on, political and economic processes. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, but of course there is this kind of inherited or developed um, bias in academia and this kind of, um, that the region is perceived in a way it is perceived, which kind of precludes many from uh, going there and doing a research. Because also like how, where you will find yourself professionally if you become a specialist in, uh, I don't know, like Ukraine or Moldova or Belarus and so on. It's like a very <laughs> interesting question also because like being a specialist in like some a country of the global south like for example also of india of china like of big known countries you can far easier find a position in uh, like pro- proceed your career in academia than doing research on ukraine yeah i think this also like just boils down to how much academia is still dependent on money and then money is informed by discourse and then in order to get money for something you change the discourse for example probably the war changed discourse quite a bit and pointed out to some of the existing ignorance as you said when people kind of uh, whoever wants to study the post-soviet space just goes to russia and now you know suddenly hopefully you know there'll be money made available to like enlarge a little bit this pool of, of knowledge but um, um, yeah i'm quite sort of uh, I'm, i'm happy for this uh, like sort of segue into into academic research because i also wanted to for us to have enough time to talk a little bit about the research that you were doing um uh back in ukraine 
Uh, you worked and published on gender um, inequality and um, in particular on this like long lasting impacts of uh, the crisis following 2014, uh, the impact on women and their position on the, on the labor market. Uh, you were also discussing some implemented austerity measures that have sort of partly echoed the pressure from international institutions. And this is something uh, that uh, I'm very curious about because I, I see a certain pattern uh, in Moldova as well. And this is a question that I have been asking myself as well. How can we sort of process or kind of interpret this um, dualistic, dual impact of international institution for countries like Ukraine or countries that Ukraine reports uh, to? When on one hand, there's a, a strong pressure for austerity measures in exchange for either financial support or inclusion in a certain academic, in a certain international community. But also, on the other hand, this kind of international institutions can oppose certain negative trends or governmental conservative uh, trends, in particular when it comes to women's rights or minority rights in general. How can we make sense of this kind of like weird pressure? Mm, well, of course, this pressure, this double thing is very visible in the case of Ukraine, for example, because the war, when the war started, like the full-scale war started, uh, Ukraine finally ratified the Istanbul Convention on the Protection from Gender-Based Violence. Though, we, like, Ukrainian feminists were hardly struggling, like, really struggling for it, uh, to for its ratification for years. And there was a strong opposition, mostly from conservative traditionalists, the religious cycles of society, which had a very strong impact on Ukrainian government. But uh, because Ukraine was promised uh, membership in EU, um, EU unofficially, I, I'm not sure it was an official requirement, but unofficial pressure was that you must ratify it. And it was done basically overnight without any resistance from, I mean, probably there was some resistance, but anyway, the, the uh, ruling elite ignored it. So, of course, there is this um, very like double processes involved. but. First of all, I think, uh, of course, uh, the European Union and uh, institutions like those, they are uh, pressing for also economic um, changes, which are also not benefit for Ukrainian economy, for example, because, of course, European countries, they want their economy to benefit. Uh, so that was also very visible from the association, the impact of associational agreement signed between Ukraine and European Union in 2014, if I remember correctly. But uh, the thing is that most of that um, um, like neoliberal influence uh, about austerity, about deregulation, about privatization, all the things which we like as leftists consider to be, and me personally as feminist scholar consider to be um, uh, like damaging the conditions of women, the conditions of other groups like workers and so on. Uh, this pressure mostly comes from um, international financial institutions, like the, the majority of pressure because they have a lot of leverages, leverages to do that pressure, basically Ukrainian foreign debt as the main leverage which they are using. So they are pushing for that, uh, for those changes which have a very negative impact in short and long run on people on the ground. 
so the thing is that these institutions, though they kind of um, officially also for human rights and uh, like gender equality and so on and so forth, but they in a way neglect like the socioeconomic dimension of gender um, equality or inequality. So for them, like uh, um, uh, things about gender and gender rights and women rights, they are perceived in a very liberal way, like that women are separate individuals who kind of if you protect their individual rights, they will have like an in liberal liberal sense, um, like protection against discrimination, like direct discrimination, then they will kind of flourish. But it kind of works differently because women are also a group of people who occupy a specific place in a specific like socioeconomic situation and so on. So, like, they totally, like, this international financial institution, they ignore the long-lasting feminist critique of austerity. Like, it's not like that I invented something new. When I was proposed to work in this project, like, um, I also read a whole scope of uh, literature on uh, feminist uh, um, study of austerity because it's not something new. It has been happening in many European countries, for example, after the 2008 economic crisis. And it has been happening like continuously, and it was implemented like in uh, under the um, uh, name of uh, structural adjustment programs in many many other countries. Now then they changed it to other labels, but it was about structural adjustment prog programs before, like earlier in the history. So this, this discussion is new, and there is a lot of uh, good and informed research on how this impacts the life of women, for example. But basically, these institutions, they ignore it because, of course, they do not, uh, they kind of think in a liberal uh, framework. And um, besides, they kind of ruled by the interests of creditors, which um, if they contradict the, for, like the, even the liberal uh, human rights, then too bad for human rights. I mean, that's how the system works, unfortunately. So there is this uh, dual processes of, on the one hand, we have the, all the discourse and all the, um, yeah, like talks about uh, human rights, gender equality, LGBTIQ rights. Uh, but when it comes to the um, real, like, um, programs which say propose kind of a push um, uh, local elites to deal with uh, we see how they are backfiring on the very those people who kind of on the level on the discursive level they are protecting or at least supporting in a way or don't want to do harm to them so it's it's not working because there is a contradiction between uh, these discourses of human rights and um, the economic things which are uh, which they are pushing governments to introduce on the one on the other hand you should understand that like usually governments of countries like ukraine and many other countries they are kind of not against those measures because uh, they are like advisors and the economies they were brought up by the mostly by western and sometimes local economic school which is dominated by this ideas of free market of individual freedoms of kind of small state um, protection of business rights, investment, climate, and so on and so forth. So this also kind of the question to the uh, influence of academia because uh, in general like economic uh, science uh, economies economy uh, science they are very uh, like also very liberal like um, all neoliberal like when we speaking about like uh, social sciences like um, sociology or social anthropology 
sometimes history, uh, they are more um, leaning to the left, like to social, like to social democratic at least, and often to the radical left. But when we are speaking about economic, like academia related to economic. Uh, science, uh, they are mostly on the right of uh, uh, economic policies. And uh, like there is, uh, and their leads are usually advised by those people who truly believe, I, I guess, that they were taught that that is the right way to do things. And of course, that's kind of influence the general uh, attitudes and um, general modes of operating of the whole political elite and economic elite of the country. And there is, of course, the question of interest because because elite is interested in uh, in doing this way and doing what is uh, told them to do because that's what benefits business and businesses they are like also uh, the agent of whose interests they are very much concerned far more unfortunately than the, the interest of other groups or other um, yeah agents of society Yeah, I, I find it really interesting this uh, this sort of complicity of local elite, elites in um, um, adopting austerity measures and their kind of comfortable position, sort of blaming uh, international institutions and when the audience is their electorate. Um, and I think you were, uh, I, I hope I remember correctly, in your paper you were talking about this sort of fa facade equality versus sort mm -hmm. of. Uh, Real equality, and what I thought about that, I mean, for facade equality, I, I imagine the the audiences, uh, the international institutions, if I understand correctly, you know, just yes, and uh, and local liberal civil society also, because for them it's important, so that's what I they think should be. Mm -hmm. What is the what is in your opinion? I don't know if you were you were asking yourself this question, this kind of like to imagine a little. A couple of I don't know a decade into the future, what would be the impact of this um, sort of top-down imposed, um, you know, liberal thinking that at the same time sort of detaches uh, the local elites from their from the larger uh, part of uh, of voters? Like, how can that backfire? Mm, I think there can be a dozen scenarios because, of course, I mean, as we see now very clearly, and I mean, it's kind of very obvious from history and from a very recent history, like there are many scenarios and often... Uh, of course, some scenarios depends on the decision of separate people or very small group of people, like we see in the case of um, a Russian invasion. But on the general level and like a meta history level, it all depends on political struggle. So uh, it's really hard to predict because, of course, local elite is also pressed from from the ground, like from from some civil society in general and the very different uh, segments of civil society because it's also uneven, like. On the one hand, we have liberal civil society, which is kind of also brought up in this tradition of liberal values. But then we have also trade unions, which can be very problematic, but there can be also independent trade unions. So there are all these varieties of um, of different constellation on the local ground. And uh, there is uh, also an element of unpredictability because you, it's really hard to predict, especially if you're trying to project it in a long run, how who, who will win or at least how this um, 
political struggle will be balanced in the end. Because yes, of course, in uh, the societies where elections matter at least something, like not like in Russia, for example, but for example, like in Ukraine, they're also kind of very problematic, like to decide the future of the country through an electoral mechanism. But at least we have this change of elite. To an extent, there's also still elite. They are still detached from, from people. They are related more to the interest of um, the business groups. But there is still changing. And uh, so there is this electoral pressure that you cannot um, easily make a very like um, aggressive uh, attack on, for example, economic rights of people, because then you will lose the next election and somebody will come and promise something different, which uh, often they will not implement. But anyway, people will vote for them and people will judge you according to your actions and so on. So there is this all uh, complex dynamics, of course. And so a local elite, they kind of still have to an extent balance like their own interests, the pressure from the outside, if, if there is a pressure, because sometimes for them it's not a pressure, it's just what they want themselves to implement in that country. And also the question of uh, different fra fractions of civil society and like general um, voting, like uh, elections, because people even who do not, do not have access to civil society, because you also have to have access to that because especially when we are speaking about like liberal civil society it's not like it's also to an extent can be detached from uh, people on the ground and we kind of observe it in many countries including ukraine sometimes but so there should be, people also can have no access to the civil society but they still have access to voting if it still uh, matters in this state and it matters in ukraine for example uh, there is uh, a risk for that elite that in the end they will get a protest voting and people will just vote for whoever different uh, just not to vote for those people who have been in power for the last five or four years because they kind of made things which people didn't like. But of course, there is uh, so there is this um, attempts to balance somehow. But um, uh, unfortunately, like in Ukraine and I think in many other countries in the region and beyond the region, uh, this balance is very unbalanced. So, so there is still the pressure from international uh, financial institutions and from local business and from international business. It still kind of make far more difference than the pressure, electoral pressure. pressure from civil society and uh, I think that's kind of symptom of uh, more general problems with um, with yeah with political struggle and political participation uh, on the global scale and in the region in the region the difference is probably also that we have very um, hard situation with trade unions and unlike in some countries like in uh, in the Western Europe or some countries of Latin America uh, the unions they do not make a big difference they are trying to some of them are independent and they're doing their own uh, real struggle to protect the rights of workers but on general level like trade unions are a weak actor in this in this um, location like in ukraine and in the region in general your actually work on on trade unions was was particularly fascinating for me because of the work that i have i have been doing so as i was mentioning in the beginning i i worked quite a bit on labor migration so labor rights but in a quite different context and it was quite striking to me for me to read some of your findings because 
Um, usually when we were talking about collective power or collective struggle of migrant workers, we see all these kind of barriers that prevent that. So, and among these barriers are um, high, strong hierarchical relations at the workplace that isolate a group of um, the group of migrant workers, for example. So like this market dualism and segmentation, a problem of the, their legal background and uncertain legal status, language problems. Um, so all these kind of kind objective or not objective, but uh, easy to understand barriers. And I was um, it was really interesting for me to read your work on the garment sector in Ukraine, because there you were talking about a fairly homogenous group of workers. They were mostly women, if I understand correctly. They're also all Ukrainians, so there's no yes. the legal aspect of it. They all speak Ukrainian, um, and yet there is no. So seemingly the barriers that I've been learning about do not exist, and yet there is no collective resistance. More, more, even more so, there's a high level of informality, which is again something that I have encountered in studying labor migration, where we, we see that in Ukraine, where people are still activating more or less outside the legal framework, uh, even in cases where they're being exploited. Um, how, how, why? <laughs> Yeah, that's um, a very good question. But um, you should understand that informality of, for example, in Ukrainian garment sector, at least those part of segment of the sector I was researching, it's a very different informality than informality of migrant workers. Like because, for example, all these women, at least on those factories, they were working uh, with a um, uh, termless con contract. I think um, uh, that is called when your contract is signed for indefinite period of time. So they were all legally employed, they were working formally. Um, and um, yeah, but of course, that's not uh, what happens in all Ukrainian garment sector. There is a huge part of it, which is totally informal, like when people don't have contracts. But as I was researching, my interest was in factories which are producing pro for Western brands. Um, uh, these factories, they were trying to keep everything fine on the paper. So they were employing these people according to Ukrainian legislation and everything. So informality here, it's not about the status of their contract, for example, but it's all about like this uh, small informal um, pressures um, which are put on the workers in their um, process like of working, like a labor process, everyday labor process, like the um, hours they have to stay on the factory, the payments they get for for they are doing um, the additional work, the, like all these things which uh, which are violated, like um, and um, happening not according to the law, like the health and safety issues, and so on and so forth. So um, they, of course, had like far better situation than, for example, people in Indian garment factories or uh, I don't know, like China gar uh, garment factories and many other factories which are working in global supply chains and which we hear often about but Wait, on the level even ukrainian workers in the czech republic for example yes and um, uh, for example i think um, in moldova now there will be a lot of people employed in these garment factories because a lot of ukrainian women have uh, have arrived in moldova and also probably in other bordering countries where this um, whose factories are included in this um, supply chains of western brands so but anyway like they, there is all this informality which basically 
basically makes uh, legislation and the official status of that contract just meaningless basically um, and also a, a big part of this informality is the pressure which employer can uh, make on them can make on workers like because um, we uh, when, while doing the research we found several cases of people uh, complaining people trying to protest even some attempts of spontaneous strikes but it's very uh, easy to get rid of those people you just basically make them go and their official contract does not protect them because you can make their employment situation unbearable and they can they will just resign because there is no other way to stay in the factory because their wage drops like twice and they cannot live anymore with that wage so like all this informality it allows to to make multiple pressure on workers who do not agree who complain who are trying to do something about the situation and so in the end it precludes any meaningful self-organization of workers uh, and also like on all these factories there are trade unions most of them uh, but these are kind of so-called yellow trade unions or company trade unions which some of them are just basically created because when management wants them to be there because western brand expect the factory to have a union but this union of course meaningless they are controlled by management and they do basically almost nothing for for workers involved it's uh, like the the, the picture lo looks like very um, without any alternative but of course it's not like that uh, because what i see and was what also fascinates me that like there is this aspect of informality which precludes um, trade unions for being from being effective uh, there is also the aspect of le legislation because uh, the state has been trying to change legislation to make it hostile to unions for years and i think they will do it like uh, very intensively in the following months basically um, but at the same time there are people who are still and there is also this history of uh, people's disillusionment in trade union because uh, trade union in Soviet Union was something very different from what we perceive as a trade union it was basically and many scholars write about that uh, who were studying um, uh, labor process during the Soviet Union uh, those unions were basically another hand of administration they were doing something very different from what unions were supposed to do so they, they were nothing about militarism and people still remember that and they perceive union as a kind of provider of some small social additional social benefits which are still kind of diminishing now but in the end they don't perceive trade union as somebody who uh, will stand for your rights and on your side in the conflict with management and will help you to claim something collectively uh, so there is also this perception and disillusionment in trade unions um, in the local context at the same time there are cases which kind of pop up out of nowhere like because for example there is a, a case which fascinates me as a, a political activist and as a feminist there is a case when um, um, nurses of Ukrainian public healthcare sector organized the trade union uh, quite recently. Like they started this process in 2019, and I think last autumn or something, they managed to organize a regional union of nurses. 
and uh, kind of they did it and they are trying to protest and they are trying to inform people about their rights and to say them how to protect those rights and how to deal with different problems and situations. Uh, so another case which is actually related to migration and which fascinates me also, there is a recently created trade union of uh, Ukrainian care workers in Poland. So those are people who work in the care sector, uh, mostly like elder care or child care also. And they created a trade union like also quite recently. Um, and they are operating as a trade union and helping their like um, activists. Uh, and uh, yeah, and now also doing a lot of work related to volunteering and assisting Ukrainian um, refugees in Poland. Uh, so so um, you see that, uh, I'm, I mean, um, before knowing these cases, I also heard about all these inspiring cases of even undocumented migrants trying to, to organize themselves with some, sometimes with help from local political and trade union activists. And these cases were so um, uncomprehensible for me also, like because people are in the worst structural position you can imagine, but still they kind of um, have the resources probably and uh, competences to do what they are doing and also to have the inspiration to do that. So they believe in what they are doing. At the same time, with all this case, with these cases I was naming, like in Ukrainian healthcare sector and also in um, Polish migrant care work done by Ukrainian women, it also shows that, yeah, I mean, we have these cases now in front of, their, of our face, and it also the question, what has changed? What uh, what was different in these cases? And I think that's a question which are worth uh, answering. And maybe they also signal some structural changes in the possibilities of uh, union operation in Ukraine and in political struggle in, in the country in general, which would be a very good news, I think. But it's also kind of, uh, yeah, things which should be um, researched further, probably. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very sad that we are completely out of time. Uh, there were still a couple of questions that I was uh, was hoping to ask you, especially when it comes to trade unions. Um, uh, I'm quite excited that you started uh, researching labor migration because I'm really hoping to come across you uh, in the field outside this uh, podcast. Um, Oksana, thank you so much again for your time and for your work for a very, very interesting uh, discussion. Um, uh, yeah, thank you very much for, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Olga. This was Naro Sesti or Crossroads, created in collaboration with Alam and the Czech Academy of Sciences. I am Olga Georgiev. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.